This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 7, verse 1 to 23. So please do take out your Bible. Uh, you do not have a Bible, that's okay as well. Just follow the, the passage on the projections here up front. So Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus has finished saying all this to the people who are listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When he came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. It was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am man under authority, the soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went out and touched a the bier. They were carrying him on. And the bearer stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. According to them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is the word of God. I'm not pass over the time to pass and do.
Very good morning to everyone. It's always a joy to gather with God's people to look into His Word. It's a privilege we enjoy, but we do not take for granted because it's not always available. Now today we're going to look at Luke chapter 7 in the first half, and I'll be looking quite carefully at the Bible passage. So if you have your Bible, can I invite you to keep it open to Luke 7. Uh, If you don't have a physical Bible, you could use your digital phone or your Luke journal. Let's begin this time by asking God to help us. Would you pray with me? Dear God, you were present in the darkest place in times of war when people could not see hope It is your word that shines light to them. In a time where hearts give way to fear, it is your word that will bring back the hope. To the eyes that are deemed by darkness, it is your word that brings spiritual sight to eternity. For those of us here, um, whether we are youth or we are adults, that uh, we have gone through various ups and downs, it is your word that will point us to where hope is and to where you are. So help us this morning as we open up your word that you will help us to engage with your word, that your spirit will work in us and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you the one? Now that's a question that many people ask. Are you the one, the one we need for this job? Are you the one, the one who will save us from this war? Are you the one that I'm going to date and eventually marry? Are you the one? Now, half of you will not be around, or many of you may not be a fan of the Matrix franchise. I was. Um, it happened 20 years ago, but it's been back recently. In the Matrix franchise, you will recognize this question is the question for all the movies. Are you the one? In the movies, there was this man called Morpheus. He was the captain of the spacecraft Nebuchadnezzar. And Morpheus told Neil, who was acted by Ken Reeves, that he could be the one, the one that everyone's been waiting for, the one prophesied that at his coming will hail the destruction of the Matrix, which is the machine world. You'll end the war, you'll bring freedom to people. Are you the one? That's the question that we always ask. As we begin looking at today's passage, the big question we have is this. Is he the one? Is Jesus the one or should we expect someone else? Now today's passage, there are three accounts, two important miracles and one critical question. So let's open up your Bible to Luke chapter 7. And this is how Luke chapter 7 begins. The 7 verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, Jesus enters Capernaum. Now, all this refers to Jesus' preaching earlier and his call for people to respond. And Capernaum, Capernaum was actually a key location that Jesus taught and did many miracles. Now, many people in Capernaum would have heard the good news that Jesus speak. Many of them would have 
pat Jesus' shoulder or give him a fist palm to say hi, and they might have even have eaten with Jesus in person. However, you will find out very shortly in Luke chapter 10 that they eventually did not believe in Jesus, the one that they should have responded to, and Jesus said that their destination is not heaven, but Hades, the place of the dead. But in today's passage, we come to this very interesting account. It turns the focus not on the Jews, but on a Gentile and uncircumcised man, the enemy's man, a Roman centurion. This is what verse 2 says. Look at it with me. Jesus entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and was about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, he is a man of authority, the centurion. He will have up to a hundred men under his uh, command. That's why he's called a centurion. He's stationed uh, in Capernaum, and if he's there, he would have authority over the people. Yet, unlike what you see in wars where soldiers and powers are being abused, we see that he is one that shows kindness to those under his military purview. And he's also kind to his own servant who is sick, who is dying. Well, this centurion is impressive if you look at it. It's a Roman officer, yet he's well-loved by the Jews. Just think of enemies who love the other side. But that's how it is. It's a strange combination. Two things that the Jewish elders praise him for. Look at verse 5. The centurion, he loves Israel. And number two, he has built a Jewish synagogue for them. Now, perhaps the centurion could even be a God-fearer. You know what's a God-fearer? A God-fearer is someone who is not born a Jew, but he will listen to the scriptures and he will fear God. Perhaps he even attends the synagogue he built. Now, the next thing we learn about the centurion is his humility and a careful understanding of the Jewish culture. Now, he is a man with authority but he did not think that it was appropriate for him to come to Jesus to ask for stuff. So he sent elders of the Jews to speak on his behalf, and so they did. And this is what verse 4 says. When he came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, Jesus. And so verse 6, Jesus went with them. Well, if you notice, the elders have taken... Uh, upon themselves to praise the centurion and even suggest to Jesus that the Jews, including Jesus, actually owe it to the centurion. So Jesus, you need to go and heal this man. Surprisingly, Jesus responded to his request. However, here's the thing. If you are following the passage as Jesus and then the crowd following him approached the house of this centurion, everyone wants to see what's happening. The centurion sent a second team of delegates. This time, it's his own friends to tell Jesus, hey, do not come any nearer. Now, here's an interesting thing, because he just said, come to my house. So whether it's a change of mind or it is a misrepresentation by the elders, we are not sure, but the words of the centurion to his friends are very clear. He says this, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
Notice what's the difference. While the elder says that the centurion deserves Jesus to go, the centurion says that I do not deserve to have you. What the elder says, you go and heal the servant. The centurion says, do not come. I do not deserve to have you under my roof. Just say a word. So this centurion, is, he has a really clear recognition of his own unworthiness before Jesus. It was even more shocking when we hear his address of Jesus. And uh, the root word here would have been kurios, which is Lord in verse 6. Now, two things for us to note here. I want you to look at your verse. Two things to note in verse 6. While the word Lord would have mean perhaps sir or even respectable rabbi, Levi has never used this word in that way. It has always been used to refer to God or the divine Christ in chapter 5 at the shock of Peter and also of the leper up to this point. So this word kurios or Lord wouldn't have just been rabbi or sir. Now the second thing is this, the centuries address of Jesus, a Jew as a Lord, is counter who he is because he's a centurion whose loyalty is to the Roman emperor. He is the Lord and he is the master. So for the centurion to call Jesus Lord is unlikely to be a military or even political address. It is highly a spiritual one. If he's a God-fearer who has been hearing scriptures, then it is possible that he is acknowledging that Jesus is divine or has authority from God. So the friends, they go to convey the centurion's understanding of authority. And verse 8, look at it, he says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now clearly, a humble man, he could have said, I'm a man of authority, but he actually says, I'm just a middle man. I'm a man who has authority over me, and I'm just exercising authority given to me. But you, Jesus... You are one with authority. You are the one who has power over the realm. So his point to Jesus really is that Jesus is the one with authority over the realms and he does not need to come because one with such authority of Jesus does not come to the centurion. And centurion would have no place to go uninvited to the presence of one with authority. He knew what is authority and This is what he says to Jesus, just a word, and the realm under you obeys you. That's the faith of the centurion. Now, dear friends, this is one of the most amazing accounts you can ever find in the scriptures because you can't find a higher praise that Jesus gave to anyone. It just flipped you and you wouldn't find one greater than this because this is what Jesus says in verse 9. I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And so with a quick note, Luke ends off verse 10 saying that the servant was well. He didn't even mention what Jesus said here. So there are two key things that we cannot miss out in Luke's account. Here, The first is this, that Jesus' word is adequate to save. There's no fanfare, there's no fancy performance here, just the word. Now the second is this, that God gives faith to the centurion without him seeing Jesus. Now here's a 
a Gentile believer who has not seen Jesus, who believes upon hearing and will entrust a life that's precious to him at the single word of Jesus. And Jesus commanded his faith. In fact, this sets the expectation that the great news, the good news will go and must go beyond Israel to the rest of the Gentile world in Luke's two volume. And they will reach the most unlikely people and unworthy people like you and me. Indeed, God can bring about faith in people by hearing his word without seeing or even touching Jesus. Now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, writes John in his gospel. Now, even today, you and I can rejoice that God's word can bring about faith in your life, in, in my life, by hearing him without having to see him. Because there is Capernaum, people who have seen Jesus and ate with him and sat with him, but they, Jesus say, will end up in Hades, whereas someone like a centurion who has never seen him and had faith on hearing and about Jesus will receive Jesus' healing. Now the centurion reveals two things about faith that I think we need to think about. Now, the two things. The first is this. The centurion sees who Jesus is. And number two, he sees who he is before Jesus. Now, the same applies for you and I when we talk about our faith. The first thing is we are to see who Jesus is. He is the Lord who has authority in his word to save. Now, we have the Bible. You have a Bible in your hand or a phone with the Bible. We've read it. What do you think of Jesus' word? Does it have authority the way that the centurion have recognized? Is he the Lord? The second thing that the centurion says that it comes to us in, when we speak about our faith is that we are to see who we are before Jesus, that we are really unworthy, desperate, and dying. Remember the words of Peter back in chapter 5, at a miracle that he was shocked and realized the divinity of Christ of Jesus, and he said this, he cried out, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And here, without a miracle, the centurion says, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word. Now, dear friends, many of us, you have your Bible, I have my Bible. Many of us have heard Jesus' word in the Bible. What do we think of Jesus' word? Do they matter? Who is Jesus in our lives, in our world? Does he matter? Now with that, Leo continues verse 11. Look at it with me. 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. Now we've just seen that the word of Jesus can heal the dying, but now we are not confronted with a dying. We are confronted with a dead. Look at this second account of me. In fact, look at verse 11. It tells us Jesus, by this time he had gathered this great following. People want to hear him. You want to be in the in thing, you join Jesus. So this crowd were following Jesus. Jesus goes in. As with every town, he goes to preach and he wants to bring the good news. But here is the confrontation. If you look at verse 12, this is 
a serious affair. Verse 12, as he approached the town gate, town gate is where everyone meets to have discussion, negotiation, and decision. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And listen to this, a large crowd from the town was with her. Now, do you notice this picture? What's happening? Here is Jesus coming into Nain with a large crowd bringing a good news, and there in Nain comes out a large crowd with a dead news, and they arrive in the front of the gate of the town. Who is going to give way? Now, just imagine me a, a wedding car. I don't know if you've seen wedding car with the convoys. They're happy, going for some celebration. As the wedding car and the convoys come out, in out turns a funeral procession. Who's going to give way? What do you think? Are the mourners going to stop mourning and celebrate? Or will the wedding procession pause and let the date pass? Because here's the thing. Those who are still alive, they still have a joyful journey ahead. Those who are dead have arrived at the destination. Who will give way here? Now, one of the hardest things a person will ever have to experience, and I hope none of us here, we are still young, I hope none of us will ever have to experience this, is for someone to mourn for the death of his or her child. No parent ever won that. And there's, um, there's an account that Pastor Ken Hughes, he shared in his, one of his sermons. I want to share with you this with regards to death. This is what Pastor Ken wrote. He says this, Joseph Bailey, Joseph Bailey, he's a man, he knew what the loss of a child was like. In fact, he and his wife, Mary Lowe, lost three sons, one at 18 days after surgery, another at five years with leukemia, the third one at 18 years after an accident. So when Joe Bailey wrote about the death of a child, people listened, and here's part of what he had to say. This is what Joe Bailey said. He said this, Of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. In Carl Jones' words, is a period placed before the end of the sentence. Sometimes when the sentence had hardly begun, though we expect the old to die, the separation is always difficult, but it comes as no surprise. But the child, the youth, no life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonders, its potential. No death is a cruel thief when it strikes down the young. He goes on to say, I met a man who was in his 70s during the first 10 minutes together. He took out the faded photograph of a child out of his wallet. His child who had died almost 50 years before. Now here's the thing. When a parent has to send a child to the grave, he or she sends part of himself or herself with it. So the death of a child is unbearable, but here, I want us to just imagine it becomes unthinkable because here's a woman who has buried her own husband and now on her way to bury her own son. 
It's a grieving woman who has no protector, no provider, no name, no lineage, no future, no hope. Only always accompanied by loneliness, sorrow, imminent poverty. A woman whose life seems to have ended before it actually does. She's like a living dead. Now it's obvious the town recognizes and has pity on her. So the whole town is coming out with her because no one else she has in her house. So here is the confrontation. Jesus and his good news, like a bridegroom with great news. And here is a woman with a dead body with death news. Who gives way? Look at verse 13 with me. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said to the widow, don't cry. Don't cry. I want you to pause at verse 13. If you have your Bible, look at it with me. I want you to just pause. Look at verse 13 because there are two things that are very striking here. The first one is obvious. And it's this, don't cry. Because that is the most cruel words anyone can ever say to a widow who has lost her only son. Even the most cruel man would not dare to say these words to this woman in front of two large crowds. There are no words of comfort because there is none. So that's the most cruel words that can ever be spoken to such a woman. But then... The second observation here is what turns the words of Jesus to be the most comforting words we can ever hear. And it is this. Look at verse 13 and see whether you spot it. This is actually the first time the narrator himself, Luke, addresses Jesus as Lord. It's not anyone in the account that is calling Jesus Lord. It is Luke himself. No one is asking Jesus to do anything. It was a moment that even a wedding crowd would go silent. And Luke himself, he couldn't help it. He writes, when the Lord saw her. He didn't write when Jesus saw her. He says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. Luke is bringing out the title that he has been using and reserving only for God and only when, when Peter cried out and when the leper acknowledged. When the Lord saw her in the midst of public sorrow, private excruciating pain, the Lord reaches out to the woman. Now here's the point. This is the heart of God. Luke brings it out to us. The compassion of the Lord God when he sees the brokenness of this world that we are in. And this is why Jesus comes. He sees dead people everywhere. And if someone does not have eternal life as an insurance, that person is as good as dead. Jesus sees dead people everywhere in this world and he comes to stop that final end coffin when you put the coffin eternally into the grave. He comes to stop it. Look at verse 14. Then he went up, touched the bier, they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. Now, if time stood still when death arrives, some of you are still young, you, you may not have experienced funerals of your own loved ones. Perhaps some of you have. But those of you who are older, you have. Those who are close to you, those who have 
you have sinned for years and they are no more. And you know, on those days, even if you are busy at work or in school, nothing really matters. Everything stops. You sit there next to the coffin looking at a loved one and time stops. If time stood still when death arrives, I want to hear this next sentence. When death stood still, if death stood still when, sorry, if, if time stood still when death arrives, you need to know death stood still when Christ arrives. Because at this moment, when Christ arrives, death stops. You know, one of our brothers is going to be preaching at a funeral later at 8 p.m. tonight. He's not going to say what Jesus says, but what Jesus says, no one else can. And you wouldn't have Jesus preaching at a funeral because where Jesus goes, funeral ends. And this is what Jesus says. The whole procession comes to a halt. Verse 14, Jesus says, Young man, I say to you, get up. At the Lord's command, even the dead cannot refuse, even the dead listens and obey. And so verse 15, the man, the dead man sat up and began to talk. He was clearly alive. No, we have no idea what he says. Perhaps he got up, he looked at the bearers and says, hey, what's up? Why are you carrying my bed? Perhaps he looked at Jesus and says, I have a dream. We have no idea what he says. He wasn't talking to his mom. But Jesus then goes on, verse 15, he gave him back to his mother. Your mom needs you. Come back. Who is Jesus? <laughs> That's Luke's question for us. And he'll bring that up again shortly. No, it seems so obvious if you're a regular church goer, if I ask the youth right now, you're just going to shout out, oh, Jesus, he's the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. That's what you will say. That's what you've been taught well in Sunday school and that's what you are being taught you. But can I say, it's not so obvious to many people. Many can read to this passage and say, who is Jesus anyway? In fact, the two large crowds standing as eyewitnesses, they got it totally wrong. Can you spot what they said? They were terrified, yes. They were amazed, yes. But they got it wrong when they said, verse 16, a great prophet has appeared amongst us. Now, the crowd when they say that most likely they remember this great event back in 1 Kings 17. Let me just refresh to you what happened in the Old Testament. There was this great prophet called Elijah. Well, there's another one called Elijah who did the same thing. But here's the thing. In Elijah, Elijah was with this widow who had a son, but then the son died. And this woman came to the great prophet Elijah and he said this to him, crying out, why do you have, what do you have against me, you man of God? Do you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? <laughs> Elijah was heartbroken and he took the son, brought out to the upper room, and then he cried out to the Lord, Lord God, let this boy's life return to him. And you know what? The Lord Yahweh God heard him, gave the boy back to the son, uh, gave the boy back to Elijah, and Elijah gave it back to the mom. But here is the big difference between these two resurrection. What Elijah did was he cried out to God, to the Lord God, and the Lord God responded. What Jesus did was he spoke to the boy, get up. It was not a second command, and he did. 
Now, here's the thing we have as we walk through this second account, if you're still with me. This is not a secret recipe that you're going to use this formula when you go to a funeral. No one dares to use it. The pastors will never say that. So it's not a, it's not a secret formula of raising the dead, but it is a pointer of who Jesus is when you read a passage like this, that Jesus is Lord and because he's Lord. I want us to consider three implications that are directly relevant to you and to me. Here are three implications. I'll go very quickly. The first is this, that Jesus or the Lord will raise the physically dead people. Now, one of the most beautiful passages that I love I love and I love so much that I read at every single Christian funeral. And I hope you keep it in your heart because you will need it. It's from 1 Thessalonians 4. I just want to read a small part to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. In a place where the dead in Christ are, this is what Paul says. Do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And then he goes on, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are dead in Christ, they will rise. And it will be different from this young man, because this young man who has been resurrected is still dead now. But the day that those who are dead rise in Christ, they will never die again. And that will be us if we have Jesus as Lord. The body may die, but it will not stay in the grave. And Luke 7 is but a glimpse of the future. Now the second implication is this, that Jesus, the Lord, brings hope to the hopeless. No one can actually lift the unbearable pain of the broken, the grieving, the hopeless people who echo meaningless, meaningless for the young people, you probably don't read the news. But right now, war is going on. People are dying. People are losing husbands, sons, fathers. Who is going to give them any comfort? No one is going to give them any comfort, but the Lord is able. And that's where you hold the Bible that you have in hand. will give hope to those who do not have hope. It is a spiritual balm that gives eternal restoration. Now, the last point here is that even now the spiritually dead can still hear Jesus. And we need to preach the good news to the spiritually dead. Those that you call your friends, your loved ones, those that are not yet assured of where they are heading. You can be assured that when the word of Jesus speaks, those who are spiritually dead can still hear it. So who is Jesus to you, to me, to our neighbors? Is he the one who has power beyond the grave? Now I want to close with this last segment, which is one of the harder ones. But I want us to bring here, because this question we have been asking, who is Jesus? comes right smack here and asked by the creator's prophet, not Elijah, but John the Baptist himself. Look on with me to verse 18. Look at verse 18, chapter 7. John's disciple told him about all these things. Now, that would mean at least telling John about the healing of the centurion's servant, raising of the widow's 
only son. Now the question raised by, Jesus, uh, by John was repeated twice for emphasis. In this very expensive papyrus paper, verse 19, 20, they say the same thing, but it's being repeated here for your attention. Verse 19, verse 20, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now we are really unsure why Luke brought John in here and why John, the greatest man, if you hear next week, he's the greatest man ever born, would ask such a question. And we may never know exactly why John asked this question, but perhaps it is this. Perhaps because Jesus hasn't fulfilled all that John had expected for the Christ, specifically back in Luke chapter 3, 17, when John was still a free man and not a prisoner, he was raising his voice at the crowd saying, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Can you imagine as John raised his voice there, people were jumping and diving into Jordan River to be baptized because the fear of the quenching, the unquenchable fire of God is great. But you know what is happening now? Right now, John is in a dungeon prison. And just outside the dungeon prison, Herod is having a joy of his sinful life and doing all the evil stuff. Why is Jesus not burning up the shaft? Why is John still there and Herod out there? Well, you know, later in Jesus' ministry, he will be the one that preaches the most about hell and about judgment. But right now, while John is still alive, he's preaching about mercy and good news and healing people. So as John's disciples come to Jesus, verse 21 tells us that Jesus had cured many who had diseases, sickness, evil spirits. He gave sight to the blind. How did Jesus respond to John's question? You know what? Just think with me for a moment if, if you're here. Just think with me for a moment. If Jesus said yes and no, it, it doesn't help John at all. How does it help John if Jesus says Yes, I'm the one. He's in prison. Herod is outside. How does it help John if you say, I'm not the one? Because he knew from birth, he is the only one mentioned, apart from Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit before he even got out of the mom's womb. His job and destination was there from day one. Yes and no doesn't work for John. How does Jesus answer John's question? This is what Jesus did. He did his miracles, and then he quotes scriptures. Various parts of Isaiah, this is what Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the, dead, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the one who brings scripture into fulfillment. And if Jesus is the promised one, the Christ, the divine Lord, then he will fulfill scripture in his timeline. And this is critical how Jesus wraps up his answer to John. And this is important for us. The most important part after he has quoted the scripture and identified who he is, is actually in this very last verse in today's passage. Would you look at it with me? He says this right at the end in verse 23. He says this, 
Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Now, speaking to John and all who listen, Jesus wants those who seek him to trust him and his timing. Don't be surprised, don't be stumbled by Jesus. Like I said, for John, a yes and no would not suffice. Because you know what? Just a bit down the road, John's head is going to roll on a platter at Herod's birthday party. What Jesus wants him to know is that judgment will come at God's timing. Herod's judgment will come, but John, you will not get to see it. You will have to trust even at your death. And so do we. You know, this time, many people are praying for Ukraine, for Russia, and we pray that God's justice and rescue will come. But you know what? It is in God's timing. And our brothers and sisters need to know that, that they may not stumble if it comes later than they hope, that they may not stumble when it arrives only after their husband or fathers or sons are dead when others are not. God's deliverance has started, but we have to wait on Jesus for completion and His timeline. So dear friends, many in Jesus' time, even today, will struggle because Jesus may not always meet your expectation or my expectation in our timeline. If you're suffering, some of you are, some of you are not. If you're suffering and going through tough times, you may be praying hard. And God can answer the prayer. But if God is slow in responding to you, Jesus says, do not be stumbled. He will come. He will. But don't be stumbled if it's slow in coming. Because vindication is God's, rescue is God, but He promised and He will give it in His time. God can, but God may not always choose our timing. So, brothers and sisters, as we close this time, if you're young, you have not asked major prayers to God and wait earnestly, the day will come. You will. For those who have been praying and haven't heard from God at times and you're longing, Verse 23 is Jesus' answer to you. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus will answer, not our timeline. But how will we respond? Who is he to us? As we close this time, the question stands, who is Jesus? Is he the one? And today's passage affirms that Jesus is the one whose word has authority. He's the one who comes for the unworthy, he's the one who speaks and the dead comes to life. He's the one who has compassion for the hopeless and helpless. He's the one who fulfills God's promise, but he's not the one who will follow our schedule, our timing, our demands, because he is the divine and we are not. So may the Lord help us as we close this time that we have the faith of a centurion who can't see Jesus in person, who trusts that his word will bring completion. Let's close this time. In prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's passage, and we'll hear more. But we pray, God, that you help us to know Jesus is our Lord, and Jesus' word is sufficient. Jesus' power is beyond the grave, and Jesus is the one who is to come and who has come. So help us, Father, we pray that we will not be stumbled in the days where we cannot hear your answer immediately. We will not be stumbled when we do not see the power of Christ at work immediately. That we will not be stumbled when we see evil seeing to be victorious, but we will trust because he is the Lord. And we can know that he is the one who will raise the dead to life and he will be the one who will vindicate those who are already dead. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now I've got uh, two short questions, which is going to be very short. Three, four minutes for you, but you can have a think of this. Two questions. What are some ways we or people can be stumbled on account of Jesus? Have you been stumbled on account of Jesus because of disappointment, expectation? Yeah. Have a thought about that. And second, who is Jesus to you? Right? So just a few minutes and we'll come back uh, together. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.